This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a very interesting book published by Bloomsbury titled The Intersection of Fashion and Disability, a Historical Analysis, which does exactly what it says, which is delightful, because we need to think about the intersection of fashion and disability, because we all wear clothes. Um, Disability is very much something part of most people's lives, even if it isn't right this second, it probably will be at some point. And the history of both these things doesn't necessarily get talked about a lot anyway, and very much not together. So it's incredibly exciting to have this book to go through all of these and many other things. And I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book, Dr. Kate Annett Hitchcock. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on the podcast. Well, Miranda, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm very glad to have you. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yes, absolutely. Um, So my name is Dr. Kate Annett Hitchcock, as you've already said. Um, I am originally from England, um, but I've lived in the United States for, oh gosh, about 35 years now. Um, I do travel back and forth a lot. I'm lucky enough to have a career that's allowed me to do that. Um, I want to start off by saying that I I am not um, noticeably disabled myself. Um, I've had some temporary disabilities, um, but I am not. I do not count myself as as part of the disabled community. So I want to get that straight right up, right off the bat. Um, I am have been working in uh, the fashion fashion academia for almost as long as I've been in the states. On and off, took a few years out here and there. Um, have always, but my bachelor's degree was in art history, um, and I got that at the University of Manchester. And um, so history is something that has always fascinated me. But then my research subject, my field of research, has been since 
about the year 2000 in the intersection of fashion and disability because that's what I decided to do my doctoral dissertation on when I started my PhD at Virginia Tech in the United States. And I didn't know it at the time, but um, Virginia Tech had actually been one of the sort of pivotal universities in the late 60s, early 70s, when there was a lot of what we call extension research going on. Um, extension and outreach is something that um, is is very particular to what we call land-grant universities in the US. And traditionally, every state was given uh, the funding for a land-grant university back in the late 19th century. And it was a way to put research back into the community. So basically translate research and apply it to the folks who needed it in the communities. And it, it was uh, agricultural to a large extent, but then there was engineering as well. And then clothing and textiles extension was, was very, um, was was part of most of these universities programming really from the 1940s into the 1980s and then things changed a little bit to become more sort of fashion business and now there's there's fashion programs spread all over the place so anyway that's a a long rambling intro to how how how, how I came to do this subject and I um I'm very interested in um, how people who are disabled have have coped with finding clothing. Um, I actually had a part-time job when I was doing my doctoral dissertation making clothes um, for my landlady who was disabled and I just started thinking about you know the something I hadn't really ever thought about before and about access to fashion, not just physically, but I think emotionally as well, because fashion is such a transformative thing. You know, we 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 like to fashion ourselves in some way or another. Um, but anyway, more on that a little bit later. Mm. So why I wrote the book was because I had collected a lot of information for my dissertation and I had a limited amount of pages and my <laughs> my PhD advisor told me that if I didn't stop writing that she wouldn't be my PhD advisor anymore so so I um I stopped and now I have all this stuff that I collected that couldn't go in the dissertation and I thought I've got to get this out there I've got to get some of this information out into the public eye and 2018-2019 was sort of a time where we started to see mainstream brands open up and make clothing and accessories more available for the disabled community. There also started to be a lot of activity on social media. And so I thought, well, it's I as a as a sort of sort of semi-trained historian, um, I feel that that historical context was something that was missing from the conversation. Um, you know, history is really informative. 
it gives us, like I said, a context to work with. It's not like the subject just popped up out of the ground one day and said, hi, here I am. You know, we've, we've been, people have been working in this space for decades um, and there have been disabled people for centuries and there has been fashion for centuries and and at some point the two have had to have come together and so it wasn't just a case of me getting all of this information out there I was actually genuinely excited about going back further than I'd done for my dissertation and and start to explore a little bit you know prior to the 20th century. Mm. Thank you for giving us that backstory I think it really sets up a whole bunch of things for us to talk about. Um, And one in particular I'd like to start with, because this is something you've been working on for quite a while and the sources are such a part of it, um, with any historian, of course, you know, how do you deal with sources? How do you find things? It's always a fascinating topic, but particularly when it comes to clothing that may or may not get preserved right it can be used for so many things in ways that maybe it doesn't come down to us in archives um and also with a particularly less explored area of fashion that's maybe even more likely to be the case so i especially want to ask you about sources um both kind of what ones you used for the book and how you went about that and whether in this process of doing this kind of research you might have any tips or recommendations to other researchers about how to approach these kinds of sources? Yes, absolutely. Um, gosh, it was a, it was a very interesting process. Um, and I, I guess starting out, I did want to try and find as much primary data as possible. Um, and what I decided was that I was going to try and contact as many of the the bigger fashion, um, using air quotes here, or, or museums that had were notorious or famous for good fashion collections start there, because a lot of the research that I had already done was very much a sort of trickle down, like someone would send me in one direction, I'd find somebody else and go in another direction. And um, so it was a it was a lengthy process. That's how I started out. Um, I would I do want to preface this by saying that the the history of the disabled community has not been well documented and the history of fashion has largely ignored disability <laughs> so right off the bat I knew I wasn't going to get much from you know the regular textbooks or archives um, or collections that uh, oh, so um, I had to really think about, actually think about terminology to start with, because um, it's um, it's a it's an unfortunate, but um, you know, some of the terminology that has been used for disability in the past is not the least bit acceptable now. So, but then I started thinking, well, you know, I had to go back and and look at or how, how were people with disabilities regarded in the 19th, 18th, 17th century. And so I went to the Library of Congress terms and started just listing out all of the terms, a lot of which I can't even say on a podcast. Um, but things have changed, right? And the same thing with fashion. Fashion is is sort of notoriously difficult to pin down 
its clothing, its garments, its accessories. It's also fashion is a verb, right? So we think about fashioning ourselves. Um, so in that context, I had to think about well, how would how would people, you know, there's tailoring, there's dressmaking, there's stitching, there's sewing. There's so many different terms. So I had to sort of nail down a whole list of terms I was going to use for searching. Um, I do mention that in the book as well. If anybody's interested, I can I can give further information on that. Um, when I started looking. Uh, so I was, I was looking at documentation, I was looking at art, um, I was looking obviously at primary artifacts. And then just as I got going and started making appointments, then the pandemic hit. <laughs> so I had this list of wonderful people who had said, you know, well, I think I might have some things I'm not quite sure what they are, but you're welcome to come and have a look. And I had gotten funding from three different fantastic sources and then everything shut down. <laughs> so um, I was able to pick it up again in well, as late as, let's see, 2021. The end of 2021 was the, I think the last visit I made to a museum over here in the UK, but um, it was slow going. And I, you know, a lot of the things that I'd wanted to see at some of the bigger museums, I never ended up going to because it was, um, you know, it just, it just wasn't possible. And it was, I, I got a lot of feedback from curators though. Um, and some of them ranging from, yes, I've got X and I know that it was used for, this purpose and I know who wore it all the way to well we've got some dresses that have been altered from the early 19th century and and we just thought it was bad dressmaking but and I'm paraphrasing here right but uh, maybe maybe it was um, adapted as the term that most people use or altered to fit the wearer um, and so it, it's sort of like a needle in a haystack. Um, mm. I, I also, so then I, I also for, for, um, I went back to, I, I live near Durham, North Carolina and there's Duke university, which has a wonderful medical history library. And the folks there were fantastic. And I was able to go back and look through sort of 17th and 18th century books, to see what was actually written in the medical literature about how people had dealt with, um, you know, what, and again, air quotes, what were known as deformities of bodies. Because there was actually a, a very, the 18th century was, was incredibly concerned with how upright you were <laughs> as a person. And so there, there's a whole lot out there on, uh, assistive devices, I guess we could call them now, were being invented in the hundreds, literally throughout the 18th century to encourage an upright posture. Because if you were a fashionable, air quotes again, person or someone in sort of the upper echelons of fashionable society, it was very important for you to look a certain way. Um, so that's, you know, that that is just an example of I hadn't would never have thought about a medical history library, but you have to, when you're doing the first dive into something, one has to 
be very sort of creative and exploratory and also listen to what people are saying. I, I found most of my visits and most of the things where I was just like literally turning cartwheels when I found something came from people who said, you should try X. I would never have done it. So I have, I have a lot of thanks on, on the sources. Mm, no, that, those are great recommendations. Thank you for sharing them. Um, while we're on the topic of finding garments that um, could have been adapted, could we discuss a few examples that you include in the book where there were adaptations made for a particular person to wear them and then how they changed the garment kind of became a mainstream sort of style? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want, do you have one in mind or? I mean, there were a lot of cool ones. Yeah. So whichever <laughs> one or two you'd like to take us through, I think will be great. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Well, I, I do love the story about the raglan sleeve. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I hate personally, I hate the fact that war gives us stuff that we wouldn't necessarily think about. In you know, I just I think war is like the worst possible thing, but every now and then there is sort of a flurry of innovation. For example, in the American Civil War, the um, after the war was finished, the U.S. government gave uh, issued all wounded soldiers who wanted them a prosthetic limb. Um, uh, so there was a there was a lot of um, accommodation made for people who had lost a limb, and there were a lot of them around. And it's interesting that a lot of those soldiers actually didn't want to wear the prosthetic limb because they saw having lost a limb as sort of given to the cause kind of thing, and they were very proud of of their disability. Um, but but just before that, going back to the 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 war theme. Um, Lord Raglan, um, who was a, for, for those people who know their, their sort of mid-19th century British history, he was one of the leaders of the uh, group of English soldiers, the cavalry, that went out to the Crimea um, and disastrously fought the Crimean War. Um, he, I think he died out there soon after, but he had been in the Battle of Waterloo fighting with uh, the Duke of Wellington in the early 19th century, and he'd, he'd lost his arm sort of just below the bicep. Um, and w as far as I could tell, the company Aquascutum, which is still around, um, which makes basically outerwear, raincoats, that's how they got started anyway, very, very highly respected English company based in London. Um, someone there decided to re-engineer the attachment of the sleeve of his coat 
to the rest of the coat. And that re-engineering apparently made it easier for him to move. And especially when he was riding his horse with one hand, um, having lost one arm and having to have a sword as well. Now, I haven't gotten any further with the actual mechanics of that. It, it still sounds to me rather impossible. But every source that I read said that this raglan sleeve was re-engineered specifically for him before he went over to the Crimea with his, with his cavalry to enable him to have a better mastery of, of riding and fighting at the same time. And of course, nowadays, the raglan sleeve is something that has become ubiquitous, um, especially with casual wear, um, with, uh, you know, many sports, a lot of them in the US, you find uh, the sort of um, standard jersey that's worn actually has a raglan sleeve. It's just more, um, it has more ease of movement for the arms, especially if you have movement over your head and outstretched and behind you a little bit. It is, it's a much more accommodating sleeve, especially when it is made with, within a knitwear structure. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't want to get too into the weeds in terms of clothing <laughs> design for those people no, who are not familiar with those terms, but that's, I think it's really interesting that that ended up being something we see every day. Yeah, no, it, it really does. And, and definitely not something that we go, we see and go, ah, oh, civil war. Okay. Um, but as much as maybe we don't want um, war to be the impetus for all interesting or good things, uh, the civil, the US Civil War is not the only war that comes up in your book. Um, you also talk about World War I having quite an impact on fashion and disability. So can we talk about that a little bit? We absolutely can. Um, so it, yeah, it is kind of cringe making to think that a lot of innovation doesn't happen until you know people are in a real are in a real bind. But um, it, it, the the war itself, obviously, the result of that is that there were just more people with disability on the street. Um, it's you know, especially in Europe, um, people I don't think had seen a large population with disabilities with you know there were amputees around there were people with what we would call PTSD now but you know it was known back then as shell shock and so there were just just more people with disabilities after the war you also had the flu epidemic in the in you know across the world spanish flu um there was a lot going on at that time and 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 the war affected fashion fairly considerably in terms of you know what we talk about a lot in Sort of traditional fashion history is how women, for example, went out to work and took on a lot of the jobs that men had been doing who were sent to the front. Um, and that really precipitated the vote. If you look at when most countries gave women the vote in the Western world, it happened about that time or just afterwards. Um, so there were there were some things that and and never to go back right. Uh, the twenties was a time of real freedom for women's fashion. Um, but also, what happened? Um, one of the things that I write about in the book was the rise of what I call social entrepreneurship efforts that were very much textile based, and so for soldiers with both physical and sort of emotional 
cognitive disabilities as a result of the war, uh, one of the great therapeutic activities was to work with textiles in some way or another. Embroidery was a, a very, very important way. It's, you know, it's like, you know that if you get, if, if your mind is um, not restful, that getting sort of lost in a very repetitive activity can be extremely therapeutic. And so there were many activities or many people who set up these wonderful sort of therapy-based craft, um, uh, I guess, organizations. But there was one that when I found, this was one of my cartwheel moments <laughs> when I found out <laughs> about Annie Binden Carter, who was a, sounds like a real force to be reckoned with. She was, um, this was all based in Sheffield in the north of England. And um, Annie started a company called Painted Fabrics Incorporated. And it had started off as a volunteer effort. She was uh, an art student and she'd gone to, I think it was called Warncliffe Hospital, um, which is where a lot of the soldiers were coming back to who'd, who'd, who'd been sent back from the front because they were severely um, disabled by the war. And she realized that she could have them paint through a stencil onto a piece of fabric. And she started off sort of rigging up a, um, a contraption that, if you applied it to a man's the stump of his arm with a brush, he could actually use that to paint through the stencil onto the fabric. And this gave people obviously a, a sense of achievement, a sense of accomplishment, um, that they could actually take part in, in a sort of value-added activity. Um, it became a huge commercial success. She actually formed a company, a for-profit company in the early 1920s. And it went through the 1950s. I think the company folded in the late 1950s. But she had customers all over the country. Even the, the Queen Mother apparently bought dresses made from painted fabrics fabric for the princesses Elizabeth and Margaret in the late 1930s. Um, the, the sales were very, very well attended. Now, these, these were not cheap goods. Annie knew how to do her marketing and her pricing. <laughs> but I think one of the wonderful things about this, in addition to this, um, the, the, the very high craftsmanship of the work was that she created a factory setting that was absolutely appropriate for the needs of her workers. And this extended towards providing um, housing for the workers and their families that was universally designed. It included providing a little garden area so they could grow their own vegetables and crops. And I think they had chickens and, you know, a few other things. So it was it was a home. It was a community. It was a universally designed community with a purpose built. I think the, the original construction had been an ammunition depot. And so she had this wonderful big shed that she converted into a printing shed, which is where the work took place. Um, so in other words, she met the workers where they were not where she needed, where she wanted them to be. 
And I think that is a supremely important lesson that oftentimes we we talk about providing things for people, but then we don't really look at where where are they at? How can we meet them where they're at so they can do the best job that they are capable of? I think that's a lesson we can learn from today. Well, and I think you talk about that almost getting extended as we move through the 20th century um, because you discuss how we do at least mostly move away from the idea you mentioned earlier that kind of fashionable meant literally being upright and fashion was meant to conceal whatever was not upright and make you as upright as possible. And you talk about how in through the 20th century, you know, building on some of this work you've just described, perhaps fashion starts to move away from that um, into perhaps something that's more about celebrating the the body, the the many different bodies, um, rather than saying everyone must be this one exact thing. But that didn't happen kind of in a vacuum. So can you tell us a bit about what you think are the contextual factors, the changes in society that are allowing this transition in fashion to happen? Yeah, I, I mean, one of my sources in Canada um, at the the um, Royal Ontario Museum talks about uh, putting together one of the first exhibitions and included the work of Izzy Camilleri, Izzy Adaptive, and she said that that was the first time she had heard the term, you go from an I shape to an L shape. And that just sort of, she said it blew her mind when she thought about it. And it blew my mind when she said it, because, you know, the I shape is the standing figure, right? And and as soon as, obviously, there we're, we're really keeping it to someone seated in a wheelchair, but then it's an L shape. And so how do you then design for that change in shape from that upright to the seated position. So um, going back going back to your question, um, these sort of broader contextual factors, um, I think they really started there was there was a rehab component back in the 1930s that that saw a transition from people have to be institutionalized and helped in some way to, oh, dressing is actually a very good way to help people achieve independence. Like the, the just the pure activity of putting on your clothes and then being able to take them off again. And, and having uh, myself, having um, had many broken bones <laughs> in my youth, I used to ride horses. <laughs> um, I know somewhat of what they speak you know that is that is getting dressed and getting undressed is something that that is critical right so it's it's part of you know what they call activities of daily living and and there was a realization in the 30s and it was mostly with um kids who had polio that we can actually teach people to become more independent and and the activities of getting dressed and undressed were actually crucial to that so there was a sort of seed planted. And then um, in the, just after the Second World War, the person who was really instrumental in the US was a guy by the name of Dr. Howard Rusk. And he is known as the father of rehabilitation in the US. He had been an army doctor, came back, started up a rehabilitation unit in uh 
what's now New York Langone Hospital. Um, and he noticed that when people were leaving, uh, they they weren't being given, or they'd gone through rehabilitation, but they weren't being given any instruction about clothing, you know, not just the wearing of it, but the care of it and maintenance. And, and the designs just weren't really appropriate. And so he hired... Um, Helen Cookman, who I talk about in the book, and there's a lot of lot of good work going on about Helen Cookman at the moment. Um, and she was a fashion designer who was deaf. Um, he hired her, first of all, to do a research project, which then turned into a book, which then turned into a whole organization called Functional Fashions. And that all... So we see the transition from rehabilitation to fashion in about... 15 years, right, from like the late 40s to the early 60s. Um, alongside that, the I think there was, you know, in, at least in the US in the 1960s, the civil rights movement put into play a, a need for people to be recognized who had not previously been recognized in society. And so it's it's going from conceal to reveal and not just in terms of individual I need to conceal my disability it's like no people didn't want to be concealed and hidden anymore they wanted to be revealed they wanted to be part of society um, and that led then to not just dressing but self-expression and and if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the places that fashion fits into that at the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization. And and if, you, if you're going to self-express, fashion is a really, really good way to self-express and self-actualize, even though clothing is at the very bottom of the pyramid. But fashion provides this other layer that, that allows people to reveal themselves, you know, and they don't need to necessarily reveal who they really are. They can disguise themselves if they want to, which is a whole nother rabbit hole to go down but but it's about revelation um but prior to that i mean if you if you can't even find a a pair of basic trousers that fit you and that you can wear then trying to get fashionable on top of that is almost impossible and i think that's 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 sort of been where we've been going the last few years is to build on that progress so that stuff isn't purely functional anymore but fashionable if people want it to be that way i mean there's still plenty of people who just need to find the functionality um but we've been opening up and building the fashion around that as well um on an individual and group basis in some ways sort of what you're saying is very obvious like okay we can use clothes to fashion ourselves and do all sorts of things and we're now opening up those opportunities but i almost wonder especially based off of the historical scope of the book, are we opening up possibilities that used to be open, but then got closed? I mean, to some extent, your story about Raglan is, is, is like, there used to be more possibility for clothes to be individualized. And maybe we couldn't have used them in all the different ways to self-express. I mean, we have so much more technology that enables fashion to be more colorful, more stretchy, more everything now than obviously it used to be. But is there perhaps something around this idea that mass-produced clothing 
has influenced our ideas of what is disability and what who gets to be fashionable when maybe there used to be more scope because things were more individualized or is that just like deeply nostalgic and way too over romanticized and, and not actually historically the case um, I think it's a really, really interesting question. I mean, one of the things that dawned on me as I was writing the book is that the ready-to-wear fashion industry as we know it, which has existed from about 1870, give or take a few years, um, is about standardization and profit-making. So while more people have access to this thing we call fashion with the um, coming of the ready-to-wear industry. What it did was because fashion companies had to start clothing a lot more people um, because there was this growing middle class and, and, you know, just everybody wanted to have access to clothing that they could buy literally sort of off the rack or ready to wear. And to be able to make that possible and profitable, companies had to start standardizing clothing. And so that's when we get standard sizing in the industry. It's it's not one size fits all, but it is a few sizes fit all. And on top of that, there was no... There hasn't been any allowance for really for different shapes until the last few years. And I think a lot of people would would still argue that there isn't allowance for variation in shape of body, even though none of us are actually built the way that the fashion industry has its size tables set up. Um, we are all asymmetrical. I mean, I would I would even go as far to say everybody is on some kind of spectrum of shape and size, none of which fits within the standardization needed for a profitable fashion industry. But there we have it. In in order to be able to buy what we need when we want it at a price we can afford, which is what, you know, the marketing textbooks promote we have to cram ourselves into something. That's the price we pay to have things affordable and available whenever we want them. Um, that price back before ready to wear would literally have been, if I'm a fashionable person and, and let's, let's get clear that fashion in the 18th and early 19th century was more about status in society like you, know, you had fashionable people they yes gar garments and hairstyles and makeup and everything was very much a part of that but it was more of an identity so the people that were quote unquote fashionable that went along with wealth and they could afford to hire tailors and dressmakers who made their garments individually to fit them. Um, and, and obviously that is how the haute couture industry started with Charles Worth in the 1850s. That's what haute couture was about. It was about making garments 
to fit one individual person. Now, you, you might have three or four people maybe buying that one thing, but those garments were made to fit them and adjustments were made. So yes, we have lost that, um, the sort of idiosyncratic detail and that uh, of tailoring and dressmaking. And I want to add here that one of the, one of the biggest finds for me was both a set, an 18th and a 19th century tailor's manual, um, which has whole chapters on what they call, and again, this language is obviously nothing we would use now, but concealing and disguising the deformed body. So they talked about men with scoliosis and men with sloped shoulders and hunchbacks. And, and again, you know, the language is, is what it is. It's of the times. But people were trained. The tailors were trained from a very young age this was a matter of course. It was their job to make the clothing look good on the body, not to make the body conform to a pre-made pattern. And so I feel like we've sort of lost the skill. We've lost the individualization. In a way, I do want to add that I found in my research that a lot of the companies that started up in the late 60s and early 70s, which I would call sort of mom and pop companies, they were quite small. Almost everybody who started a company was doing it because they had a friend or family member who is disabled. And they started making clothing for that person and then realized that there was a sort of entrepreneurial possibility there. So it has all come out of the in the need for individual tailoring, for lack of a better term, to get mm-hmm. something that will fit people's needs and, you know, make them feel good at the same time. So mm-hmm. I'd say once mass production comes along, you have more people with access to fashion, but the standardization that happened then ended up excluding people from fashion if they didn't fit the categories that enabled companies to make a profit. Hmm. Now, I think that that's a very important point to add in. So I'm glad we've we've had a bit of a discussion of that. Um, if we think then about moving forward, obviously, there is that entrepreneurial aspect you just mentioned, um, as well as people coming up with their own solutions and um, that sort of thing. But you also talk about in the book that uh, academia has played a role in this evolution in the 20th century and probably has some roles to play in the future as well. So what do you think academia can help with as we make further progress? Yeah, I I think, um, you know, as I mentioned, there's been some really great research done um, in the latter half of the 20th century, and there continues to be really good research. Um, However, things that are produced in academia don't always get out to the people who really need it. I think uh, our biggest role in academia is training, training, and more training. Uh, We need to adjust our curriculums, if we haven't already done it, to make them inclusive from year one. Um, We need to teach students how to work with people who have lived experiences because 
yeah, there's there's not many textbooks out there right now. There are a few good ones starting to come out, but there's not, for example, the equivalent of the Taylor's Manual from, from 1740, um, which which has the technical information, but not just that. We we don't we tend to sort of do fashion training in a little bit of a vacuum um, because it's always been sort of a top down experience. But I think we need to get out into the community and we need to encourage students to get out into the community and, and work, like I said, with people with lived experiences. Um, we also need to educate designers who are disabled. Um, there's, there's many companies out there right now. Like I just read about Primark this morning who's starting a, um, a line of, um, they call it an adaptive line for, of lingerie. Um, and that, that's, God bless them, you know, whether or not you love Primark, um, they do make things that are affordable and, and hopefully they'll be accessible as well. So, but then you think about, okay, who, who is the team of designers behind that line of lingerie? Um, are they people who've had to be re-educated? Cause I certainly know 10, 20 years ago, this did not come into the conversation of a four year fashion degree. And it needs to. And and I I can't think I could probably count on one hand the number of students and I've been teaching over thirty years, the number of students who've come through my classes who've had a disability that I have known about. We just we just don't you know, our infrastructure is not in great shape. Um we're we're not very inclusive about teaching and learning. Um, we need to do better at te textbooks. We need to do better about learning materials. Uh, we need to do better about incorporating inclusive examples when we teach. And then also um, for those on research tracks in academia, more research and more funding. If the fashion area is sort of woefully underfunded as far as research goes. Um, and so, but it, but it does, you need money, you need time and you need people to be able to do good research, translational research that can really affect um, what's going on in, in the brands. Mm. Very important um, areas to improve on. And, and I think it's helpful to be so specific about that, right? Be sp so specific about, hang on, here's what needs to be changed in the curriculum here. Here's what's need to be changed in the practical room, um, because just saying kind of things need to change doesn't yeah. necessarily help us. So I really appreciated that part of the book. Um, I do want to try and end, if we can, on a sort of exciting, optimistic note. Um, <laughs> I think there are exciting, optimistic things here. Yeah. So um, given kind of you're, you're right in the heart of all of this. So what are some of the most exciting or potentially promising things we should, you know, watch out for, see what's happening when it comes to this intersection of fashion and disability? Um, sure. I, you know, I don't know if I consider myself right in the heart of it exactly, but I do keep an eye on current events that are going on. Um, you know, I see, I see brands, new brands popping up every day on a couple of feeds. And I mentioned, you know, the, the latest one was Primark, which is for those of you in the US, Primark's a how would you describe that? A stalwart um, of high street shopping? <laughs> yeah, Primark's yeah. a really big deal in the UK. Yeah. Um, that's the first thing to know. It is yeah. 
like cheap but still somehow stylish clothing um, and the shops are massive and they're everywhere (laughs) so maybe something like target but more like stylish yeah yes probably yeah i don't know if there's a good equivalent but i don't just know if there is for non-british <laughs> listeners primark is yeah. a big deal a big deal that's enough to suffice to say primark's a big deal um there's um so what i'm seeing i think as probably it, again i i will go back to um cultural awareness as being the most important thing i mean the the fact that Vogue, British Vogue, last year created those covers in the I think it was the May or June edition, with the different disabled models on the front, they gave the story, they created it in a beautiful way. It was it was knockout. It was really a huge deal. And I think when you see that kind of awareness coming from the fashion press you see what's going on on social media that's when things fundamentally change i mean we we have been able to design and create functional clothes for years you know we could we can pretty much make anything we want but it is getting the industry to accept that this market is out there it, and, and I think the social media campaigns, um, the movers and shakers of this area who have been really relentless about sort of staring down the fashion industry and saying we're here and we need to be uh, treated exactly the same as other fashion consumers because it's not about making something special. It's about making everything more accessible and i feel there's a lot of people out there right now doing a really good job at that um i'm also very excited about the generation of students who i'm teaching right now the sort of early 20s um i think this generation is a lot more inclusive in their just in their approach not not just to the topic we're talking about but in everything they've they've grown up with a lot of social awareness and a lot of social justice issues just sort of swarming around, um, and it's it, it they they that's to them social justice is really really important. It's not just that; it's, it's part of the furniture for them, right? It's not an add-on. Um, they're also, I mean, we haven't talked about you know the circular fashion industry and sustainability, marrying that with the idea of more inclusive customers to me this whole topic is about sustainability you know sustainability isn't just about climate change and not throwing your clothes away it's about creating an industry that sustains everybody no matter who they are no matter what they look like no matter what their capabilities are i cannot continue to be an exclusive elite industry and i i do I do feel good about the current generation of students who are going to go on and hopefully become managers and CEOs of companies and really change the industry and its approach. Um, I will also say that I've seen a lot of people starting to consult experts being hired and experts who are disabled 
being hired by companies um, to ask the right questions and how how do we do this um, you know the, for me the best thing for brands to do is to be you know a, for a Brene Brown moment to be really vulnerable and say look we haven't done very well at this how, how do we do better and we're here to listen and I, I'm seeing a lot more uptick in the amount of people who are consulting as well so I think that's all really cool and there's probably a lot of other stuff out there but I can't think about it right now well those are definitely some cool things so thank you for sharing them with us um if I can ask now that you've given us such a wonderful list of things um to be hopeful about in the sort of industry more broadly uh could we do a bit of looking into the future on a much more micro level rather than the entire industry and um, what about your work is there anything you're currently working on or looking to work on whether or not it's a book whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for us um, I, funnily enough, I did actually retire last year from a full-time faculty position, and there was there was many reasons for me to do that. But I am still teaching um, at North Carolina State University. I hope I can say that on the podcast, but that's that's where I hang out. Um, teaching part time. Um, I'm doing some talks slowly as sort of word gets out about the book. Um, very happy to come and talk to classes or groups of people and really love interacting. Um, I take on some individual clients to do some design work, which sounds a little counterintuitive based on what I just said, but I do like to help people who need some more sort of quite technical um, work being done. So I do help out with that. I don't have any scholarly work in the pipeline at the moment, but I am getting more and more interested in the things that I didn't do in the book. <laughs> I had to leave a lot of stuff out, which was quite painful in many cases because I was I'm just so interested in 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 this whole area. Um, so for example, you know, developmental and cognitive disability. I couldn't. I couldn't really cover that at all. My focus was almost entirely on physical disability and that history. Um, but uh, so, so there may be. Yeah, I, honestly, I could take each chapter of the book and just expand it to a whole new book in itself. Um, so we'll just we'll just see if if that's gonna going to happen i i'm i'm not i'm not sure at this point but i really really enjoyed working on this one and and if it, if it helped anybody if it gave anybody i some good ideas or just provided context a little more context for for the work that is being done right now um i i'm a firm believer in how much we can learn from history and and we can learn a lot and there's a lot of good sources out there well, I will simply remind listeners of the title of the book, uh, The Intersection of Fashion and Disability, a Historical Analysis from Bloomsbury, um, because I think there probably are a lot of things that listeners want to go read about in more detail. So, Kate, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. You are very welcome. Um, I really appreciate having this opportunity to talk to you about the book and, and a few other things. And uh, I really, I really appreciate it. So thank you so much.